This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. And welcome to season two of Future You. I'm Jeff Salingo, and I'm really excited to be with all of you for another year of talking to the change makers and thought leaders shaping the future of higher education and breaking down the latest trends with my partner in crime, Michael Horn, who's joining me today from the great city of Boston on Skype. Thank you, Jeff, and excited to be uh, with you as well, of course, uh, and excited also for our lineup of episodes already coming together for season two of Future You. A lot of folks have been reaching out to us uh, over social media, over the, the web uh, email for the show and so forth, suggesting interesting higher education leaders to talk to. And I think we're going to get to dive into some interesting and meaty topics. And of course, to those listening, uh, keep your suggestions coming. And, and Michael, we also have some big news uh, from our summers to share with folks. And so we thought um, we're just going to make this episode about that, uh, really kind of a catch-up episode since uh, we've been on break uh, for the summer and, and talk a little bit about uh, all the news that's happened in both our own lives and the lives of people in higher education over the summer. Yeah, I think it's, it's it, hopefully that people will enjoy this episode that we're doing. Now uh, we'll get to do a catch-up like you said, uh, we've had some big news on our own ends, uh, so we'll do some news from our own summers, but then we'll also run down some of the headlines uh, from higher ed more generally over the summer, just so we can catch back up uh, as we dive into this new academic year and into this new season of Future You. So maybe the first question, Jeff, is uh, that I'll, I'll jump to you is, how was your summer? Uh, it was great, Michael. It gave me a chance to spend some time with my two girls, uh, who are uh, eight and six, uh, and my wife was on uh, sabbatical from her job this summer, uh, and so we got to do a little traveling uh, and, and play a little catch-up with spending some time with the with the girls. This is just a great age, as you know, uh, with uh, with the kids, and so it was, it was nice to spend some some time with them this past summer. And how about you? What did you do this summer? Yeah, that's awesome. I, I so got to spend time with my two girls as well. My wife is launching a modern version of an ice cream truck, uh, and which should be arriving any day now to our house. Uh, so a lot of recipe testing, a lot of tasting uh, for my girls who are just about to turn four years old uh, and I this summer. So it was a lot of fun. And uh, and then we got some time to do some uh, writing as well for both of us and, and getting to sort of jump into our next venture. And Michael, of course, we also have some pretty big news from our summers in terms of work. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your news first? Yeah, absolutely. So I uh, got a new book in the works uh, and really spent some time over the summer uh, finishing a draft manuscript of a book that's tentatively titled uh, Choosing College. Uh, should be out next summer as these publisher timelines are, but uh, very excited about the book. We took the jobs to be done methodology of Clayton Christensen and, and created over 200 mini documentaries of why students choose college. And, and when I say college, I mean any post-secondary experience from uh, an, a boot camp to an online program to a four-year flagship or elite institution, and uh, really dissected why students are making these complicated choices that they are, and uh, basically have a book now that can give some really good advice, I think, for parents, students, uh, and the institutions themselves about how to better choose and design their uh, college and post-secondary experiences. So why, why this book, Why Now?, yeah, good question. So I, a couple things going on. One, we started to do this work at the Clayton Christensen Institute a couple years ago where we started interviewing hundreds of students. And what was striking to me, Jeff, was a couple things. One, the stories emerging from these students, as you know, when you talk to actual students, they're just not what the popular uh, meme, if you will, around choosing college is. It's much more complex, textured, and so forth. 
And when we started to do the jobs to be done analysis, what we saw was that students were making some really unfortunate decisions, not understanding the progress that they're actually trying to make and the circumstance that they're actually in. And if you had a better sense of the circumstance you're in, what you're trying to drive toward, or if you, quite frankly, aren't ready to know what you're driving toward, we think we can give you a lot better advice. And now is a really important time to give that advice because the stakes of choosing the wrong college or erring in some way along that college search are just so much higher than they've ever been given the extraordinary price tags we see with college, given the retreat of public dollars from college, uh, and given the uncertain uh, job prospects and, and pathways in many cases out of college. And so giving people much sounder advice uh, I think is really, really important right now. And, and hopefully on the flip side, it can really help institutions design far better experiences that, that better serve these students as well. So anything you can tease us uh, with uh, from the book? Yeah, any, any interesting stories, anything that surprised you in, in terms of reporting it? Yeah, so I, I would say three headlines right now that are on the top of my head. I'm not sure these are the biggest ones. But um, w- one, you know, the UCLA job survey gets a lot of, or excuse me, the UCLA freshman survey, just teased my, uh, <laughs> what I was going to say, gets a lot of attention for saying, you know, 90% or so of students now say that they're going to college to get a job. And yet when you talk to these students, a job is a faint part of why they're going to college, but it's not the overall picture. And so what emerges from our research and, and the five jobs to be done that we found is a much more textured picture that defies sort of the traditional stereotype uh, that has emerged of students just want a job now and so forth. In my mind, the reason on a survey you might say, oh, I want a job, is sure, that's a part of your decision making. uh, And it's something that you know you're sort of supposed to say. And if someone gives you that language, you'll say it. But most of the students we talk to who are that traditional freshman demographic they don't have a clue of what a job really entails or is. And as you've reported, Jeff, countless times, a lot of students aren't even taking paid work now before they jump into college or, or even leave college. And so they don't really have a concrete sense of what a job is. And so there's all sorts of problems that we found in that narrative. I'll give you two other really quick ones. Uh, one, I, uh, from our research, I would say the college campus is definitely not going away for a slice of the population. It's just a huge gravitational pull as part of their decision making. And while online and hybrid and boot camp and all sorts of unbundled experiences, I think will certainly continue to grow and have their place. Uh, from my perspective, for a large percentage of students, they'll continue to attend brick and mortar campuses as many of us did. And then the last thing I would say is the sort of theme of college for all uh, or or tracking people in the career and technical education and sort of these false dichotomies we weave uh, for ourselves. I I think this book is going to be a real statement that it sort of misses the point. It's when is college right for you and in what circumstance? And how do we allow ourselves to consume education in certain times in much shorter bursts where we won't be sort of strung out with a lot of debt or a lot of risk that is inappropriate to where we are in our lives? So those are a few of the things that are emerging right now uh, as I'm uh, now going back into the process. And as you know, Jeff, uh, once you have a draft, uh, all of a sudden you, sit, you see all the things wrong with the draft. So I'm going in right now and ripping it up completely, uh, which is a fun part of the writing process, but pretty exciting. pretty excited about the conclusions. And the other thing that I think was interesting, Jeff, that, that emerged is over your summer, 
you, of course, have come out with a new book contract as well. And it's it's remarkable that I think we're landing in very similar places of the college-going process, if you will, uh, about reporting on it. Do you, do you want to talk to folks about what, what you're now going to be working on? Yeah, it's uh, and I'm kind of now knee-deep knee in it. Um, I'm working on a new book about college admissions. Um, it's tentatively titled titled The Choice, A Year Inside College Admissions, Who Gets In and Why. Um, it's going to be published by uh, Scribner, which is part of Simon & Schuster uh, next, or actually in 2020 it will come out. Um, I have to finish it uh, by the end of uh, next year. And and really, um, I'm, I'm excited about this. The editor I'm working with there is the same editor who did Angela Duckworth's uh, Grip Book, which of course got a lot of attention in edu- education circles uh, last year when it came out. And, and my goal really is to explain the modern American college admission system you know, how it's changed in the last several decades, where it's going in the near future, and kind of discuss uh, the broader implications for a society where, where college is a sorting mechanism in the job market and in life. Uh, you know, I, I think there's a lot of college admissions books out there when you, you go to Barnes & Noble or Amazon bookstore or, or browse online. Uh, but most of them are kind of how-to, and there will be how-to elements here uh, as well. But it's really going to be kind of a narrative book to explain the system that we have today, which, of course, to many people is a black box. Super interesting. I'm, I'm, so if you think about a book like Frank Bruni wrote, the where yeah. you go is not who you'll be, an antidote to the college admissions mania. How does that, what you're working on, sit alongside something like that, which is less of a how-to book uh, and more of a, I would say, a guide to reassuring people? Yeah, and, and, I'm, I'm, and, I'm, hope, yeah and I'm hoping that this will be a little reassuring. I, I'm not trying to add to the anxiety that I think some people have. Around college, as we both know, you know, most people who apply to college get in, uh, you know, even though you won't know that from reading, you know, the New York Times and, and other publications. Uh, but I really kind of want to explain the system. And, you know, the, the truth of the matter is, is that most of the students applying to college today, at least the, you know, traditional 18-year-olds, their parents went to college, you know, in the 80s when the system was much different. So in some ways, this is going to be very similar to The Gatekeepers, which is a book that Jock Steinberg, who is Jack Steinberg, who used to be with The New York Times, came out with. Uh, many years ago and, and followed the admissions process at Wesleyan uh, University in Connecticut. But the thing about that book is that uh, that book was really written before kind of the rise of technology and the Common App and everything else that has made applying to college so much uh, easier. It also is in a very different period that we know about admissions because, um, you know, given what's happening at Harvard, just down the road from you, you know, as you know, as many people in higher ed know, Harvard's in the midst of a lawsuit right now uh, over um, uh, Asian American admissions. um, And as a result, uh, a lot of documents have come out in the last couple of months about how they operate admissions there. I'm probably going to get into that. um, And I'm also looking right now, I'm talking to several schools to kind of get into their admission system. So it should be a great year. I'm going to kind of tell this story through people. Um, So I'm going to be following a group of high school seniors. Uh, I'm going to be following a couple of admissions deans, high school counselors, but I'm also going to follow what I call the business of admissions. Um, in I'm going out to, uh, I'll be out at NACAC, which is the big admissions gathering in Salt Lake City. And, uh, and that's where I'm going to be talking to a lot of the companies that make admissions work. They run marketing, they run enrollment management. Uh, and I kind of want to get into how a lot of what happens in admissions offices these days, like many other offices on campus, are actually run by outsiders and not by people on campus. Super interesting. Do you have any and, and do you have any hypotheses around what that means uh, for for how admissions has changed and so forth? And 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 
it's probably early for you to say these are going to be the you know couple takeaways, but but it sounds like you have some insight into what you might find. Yeah, I mean, I think part of by looking at these outside um, companies is that, you know, the emissions process now is is like selling anything, right? And I guess emissions has always been part of a sales job. But, you know, the emissions calendar now, we used to think of, you know, emissions following a calendar of the year, and now emissions kind of never stops, right? That emissions infrastructure is constantly going, there's constant contact with students, um, because it's all about kind of getting people and students and their prospective students into the funnel, keeping them engaged, um, all the way to the time they make their deposit, and even after that, so to avoid, you know, summer melt. And so it's really going to be kind of looking at that system. It's interesting, you know, one of the books I read over the summer was Crafting a Class, which is a book that was written quite some time ago around um, admissions at liberal arts colleges uh, back in the starting basically in the '60s, the '50s and '60s. And um, and and what's interesting about that book is that you know admissions deans essentially came from the faculty. It would be that person and maybe a part-time person ran admissions at these colleges. It was like a two-person job, and you know, and they kind of went back to teaching um, in 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 the middle of the year. Uh, you know, now of course it's an entire system, right? You know. Dozens, hundreds of employees, plus all these outside companies doing this. So it, it should be an interesting ride and, uh, and really looking forward to it. That's fascinating, Jeff. Uh, I think let's, let's take a break right now. When we come back, let's actually talk about some of our summer reads uh, that we would recommend for our audience. From, from our, our, uh, I, I'm sure you had a big list of books that you poured through. So we'll take a break right now from Future You, and we'll be right back. This episode of Future You was made possible with support from the Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. The Academy is a partnership between Arizona State University and Georgetown University and is the premier training ground for those who aspire to senior leadership positions in higher education and those who want to lead organizational change at colleges and universities in the future. This episode was also made possible with support from Entangled Solutions. If you want to shape the future of education, Entangled Solutions would like to hear from you. Entangled Solutions is hiring smart, mission-driven team members interested in helping world-class institutions solve their most vexing challenges in learning and education. Learn more at entangled.solutions. Welcome back to Future You. I'm Jeff Salingo, and I'm joined by my co-host, Michael Horn, who's joining us today from his home in Boston via Skype. Um, and so staying on the topic of summers, Michael, before we dive into some of the headlines of summer, um, you know, summer gives us a chance to, I think, catch up on a lot of reading. So uh, could you talk a, a little bit about some of the books you might have read this summer that might be of interest to our audience? Yeah, absolutely. I, I like you, probably poured through a number of books this summer. It's it's a great opportunity to catch up on things that you have not read, as well as things that are just coming up and you want to read. I'll highlight three books that I think are interesting, probably for the, for the audience. The, the the first one is a book that will be coming out uh, called The Expertise Economy: How the Smartest Companies Use Learning to Engage, Compete, and Succeed. Uh, by Kelly Palmer and David Blake, who are both at Degreed, and Kelly Palmer before that was with. Uh, LinkedIn, their chief learning officer. Really interesting book, I, I thought, thinking about how do, uh, how do companies think about and quantify the skill levels uh, in, in their companies and how do they then position themselves to help skill up and where do you want to invest and how do you want to invest in a lifelong learning culture within your company as well as a strategic competitive advantage, not just because it's a way to retain employees or something like that. So that was interesting. A second one I'll, I'll mention, uh, Who You Know, that just came out uh, by Julia Freeland Fisher and her husband, Daniel Fisher. 
uh, Julia was my successor at the Christensen Institute, and she just came out with this book uh, looking at how disruptive innovation could radically rethink uh, how we uh, form social capital uh, in education. So this notion that who you know is often more important than what you know, actually, in terms of life outcomes. And yet schools outside of certain uh, elite schools have largely been structured with an idea of keeping the world uh, outside of schools and not letting it inside. And yet there's a tremendous set of experts, mentors, guiding lights that if you harness them in really interesting ways using technology, you can allow uh, students to really build social capital in neat ways. And so that I would fully understand her book, I also reread uh, Bowling Alone by, by Bob Putnam, uh, the famous book, uh, Thinking About Social Capital in Our Communities from a Societal Perspective. Uh, the last one I'll mention uh, that you just reviewed, Jeff. Uh, so maybe a good segue to asking you what you read, but uh, by our friend Ryan Craig, uh, A New You, which I, I thought was a very, it was I, when I blurbed it, I said it was the book that I wish I had written uh, because it was really a, an aggressive, uh, disruptive take, right, on how could colleges themselves get disrupted. And I, I kind of think Ryan's a little ahead of his skis, as you said in the Washington Post the disruption really seems much more of masters and professional programs to this point, uh, whereas he makes a pretty aggressive argument about how it could cut into overpriced uh, colleges that are not distinguishing themselves in some way with the value that they impart. Uh, I think he's a little bit ahead of himself on that, but I really loved the, the uh, hypothesis and thought he made some really good and sobering points. What about you, Jeff? Yeah, that was a, it. Was a great book, um, as I reviewed in the in the post. I, I read a, a, a several books this summer. Two of them I'll talk about. Uh, of the three, are, are non education books, but I think they offer lessons for people in, in education. And I think they're just well written. Um, all three of my books are actually written by uh, by journalists or, or former former journalists. Uh, the first one is Janesville, which is actually a, a couple of years old. It's about the story of the GM plant in in Wisconsin in Paul Ryan's district that closed. And what I I when I was reading it, I read it through the lens of, of regional public colleges, um, which we've talked a little bit about on this uh, on the show, which are under a lot of pressure right now. These are the former normal schools, the former teachers colleges, uh, many of which, including in places like Wisconsin, are in the corners of the state. They're the largest, usually the largest employer now in their towns. They're kind of at the central part of their towns, and not only in terms of education, but in terms of culture and obviously employment. And it, it made me think of these places as almost factories. Uh, and if you close them down, what does that do to the community? And I, I don't think we sometimes think about that um, because we only think about them as educational institutions. And so that's the way I read that book. Uh, the second one, which I loved, was Bad Blood, um, which is the book by a Wall Street Journal uh, reporter around Theranos, which is the the, the blood uh, 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 company out of uh, Silicon Valley, which of course now is is totally done and in uh, returning some of its money. But this was one of uh, one of the Silicon Valley darlings. Uh, we were supposed to be able to just take a prick of our finger and be able to do all these blood tests uh, in uh, in the Walgreens and the Safeways of the world, um, and even at our home. Um, and uh, and the, again, when I was reading that book, I, I read it through the uh, through the lens of the ed tech world. Uh, you know, we're both kind of in this world, uh, Michael, where we go to all these.
these conferences and everybody promises uh, the world um, in terms of a revolution in, in higher education thanks to technology. And I think this book in particular gives me pause to say that not everything is what it appears sometimes when people are trying to sell you on these, uh, on, on these ideas. And then finally, the third book is True Gentleman, which is written by John Heckinger, which I had um, mostly read uh, uh, last year when I interviewed John at Politics and Prose here in, uh, in D.C., but True Gentleman is kind of the inside story of fraternity life in uh, American higher education. It's a great book. And what I think it reminds you is that how much tradition in higher ed drives a lot of what we do. And, and, and the reason why, despite all the issues with fraternities at colleges and universities over the last couple of years, whether from alcohol, uh, sexual assault, um, even student deaths, how they continue to kind of be central to American higher education. And he c- explains why in, uh, in sometimes very disturbing uh, detail. So uh, three books that I, I highly recommend. So well, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the headlines of the uh, of the summer. And the, and the first one is uh, this news out of Purdue, uh, Purdue University Global, um, which of course is the new arm of Purdue University, kind of got a little hot water uh, recently because it was asking its um, professors there to sign uh, non-disclosure agreements, uh, basically protecting uh, their intellectual property uh, so that they couldn't basically take it somewhere else and go work for Southern New Hampshire or ASU or anybody like that. Eventually, uh, there was so much press about this in Inside Higher Ed and the Chronicle, they eventually dropped that um, requirement. But it brings up an interesting point, Michael, in that you know who owns the intellectual property? It used to be that you know professors would essentially run their class from the front of a lecture hall and lecture to dozens or maybe a couple hundred students. They would go home and that would be the end of it. But now, you know, professors' work kind of gets um, relayed around the world uh, via uh, the internet and online classes. They run them multiple times. Uh, you know, the professor could leave the institution, and the institution could still be running that class. Um, what what kind of uh, what kind of issues does this bring up for the future of online education? Yeah, you know, I think it really uh, is going to challenge in some ways the, the the statement of principles of academic freedom and tenure uh, from the American Association of University Professors, of course, which uh, was were, were the ones that really came after Purdue uh, for for holding this non disclosure agreement on on its professors, and I think the reason it's going to be such an issue is because institutions like Purdue University Global that are online serving 30,000 students or so, you know, and that's not the biggest of them, of course. Faculty, as we've traditionally understood it, aren't always the ones creating the courses. It's not the lecturer at Yale or Harvard uh, who's at the bleeding edge of their field and you're hearing their direct research from their mouth right on high to, to the students. In many cases, it's a team of people coming together to create a course, to put together uh, content in, in, in certain ways and so forth. And so the question is, what product, if I leave the institution, am I allowed to take with me, uh, becomes a much trickier one, I think. And can the institution continue to benefit from the intellectual contributions that I made? My, my take on it is that where a professor is actually doing research and, and contributing new things to the field, you've got to respect that uh, academic freedom uh, uh, principles. It, I just I don't see how else you you do it. Quite frankly, e- even when we publish a book right now, I probably a lot of people don't know this. The copyright is often the authors uh, and the publishing house uh, gets significant rights of what they can do with it uh, within that medium. But the author often has significant uh, copyright on it still. 
And so I think you're going to have to still default to something like that. The question is more when you're producing knowledge that's really been in the public square, if you will, and, and out there, and it's not on the cutting edge, but it's to build building block knowledge, maybe basic econ 101 or something like that. That, I think, gets a lot trickier, and, and I'm sure a professor should be able to take the intellectual contributions and repackage them in new ways. But to take the actual content itself that's been created, I think, is going to be a lot trickier because there's some sort of competitive advantage and not clearly an intellectual uh, property issue in the, in, the, in the way that it's traditionally been understood. Right. Um, the second uh, thing that came out uh, this uh, summer, or actually right before the summer, uh, was this new report from uh, Georgia Tech, um, Deliberate Innovation in, in Lifetime yeah. Education. Yeah. And I, I mean, I thought this was fascinating because it hit on a topic that we've talked a lot about in this show, Jeff, uh, which, of course, is the integration between primary and secondary schools into post-secondary education the notion of flexible learning options, uh, school not being a place that you go to one time and then exit into your career, but something that you're continuing to come in and into and out of as you're mixing career and learning uh, through a lifetime, really. And uh, there, there's this Georgia Tech commitment they talked about in the report of, of changing from uh, learners no longer saying, I got out of the institution, but instead saying forever, that, that I'm forever in. And, and of course, you're close uh, and part of this process of building this report. So I'd love to hear your take away on this and what do you think the big ideas are and, and where the impact uh, of this report might be on higher ed more generally. Yeah, as you mentioned, you know, lifetime education was a, a central tenant of this. I'll, I'll focus on two other pieces that I think are critical for people to read, and you could go to the Georgia Tech website and, and find it. One is this idea of of the what they call the atrium and these learning stations, this idea that of distributed learning around the world in a physical place, right? So Georgia Tech started a, a master's degree in computer science, and what they found was online, and what they found was that most of the students wanted to be associated with the physical university in some way. They would come to alumni events in their cities or they would come to graduation in uh, in Atlanta. And so the idea is that Georgia Tech would set up these centers, which in some ways are, think of them as Apple stores, right? Where you could come, you could take a master class, you could go to the Genius Bar and get career advice uh, and you could network. So I think that's one uh, interesting aspect of the report that's described. And, and the other piece is that they dedicate an entire section to how to become a deliberately innovative university, right? So they didn't just talk about what they're going to do, but how they're going to do it. And I think that's absolutely critical because they realize that without creating the culture to be innovative, they're never going to be able to do all the ideas in the, in the first two parts of the report um, as they're described. So it's, it's definitely something that I think is, is useful for other colleges and, uh, and universities. Yeah, sorry, I was going to say definitely themes we're going to have to continue to explore uh, on, on this season, Jeff. Yeah, so we have a, just a couple of minutes left uh, uh, to go here. Uh, there's also been a lot of news out of here in, in Washington in terms of uh, regulations from the federal government. What, uh, what most caught your eye this summer? Uh, two takeaways. One, I think when Betsy DeVos came into the department, uh, she came in as a K-12 person and not knowing a lot about higher ed. And ironically, it seems that most of the activity in the Department of Education is not in K-12, but actually in higher ed. They're looking at everything from the credit hour rule to requirements for online education, scorecard data, gainful employment, borrower defense, and accreditation, one of our favorite topics on the show. Uh, what I think was interesting is that they're really saying, how do we lessen the burden on accreditors to have them pay attention to fewer things, but things more closely tied to outcomes. And then my question from that is, if they make that change, will accreditors actually be able to uh, change in the way that they hope uh, that they might? So I, th I think it's a lot of activity there and really interesting to watch uh, in the swamp uh, where, where you live. 
uh, which I guess relates to maybe uh, maybe not a swamp, but it's another huge tidal wave coming into higher ed that you just wrote about, which is uh, a Gen Z, this new generation of students. You want to, you want to tell people about that report, Jeff? Yeah, we we call them Homeland uh, Generation I Gen, uh, Gene Twangy's uh, uh, a moniker for them, or, or Generation Z. I just finished a report that the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, published around this new generation of students, how colleges can recruit, teach, and serve them. Uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about generations, and I think there's a lot of contradictions in generations, and I found that in terms of my research, and, and not only in talking to experts, but also looking at a lot of the data and surveys that have been taken on this generation. But it's clear to me that the generation of students coming into college now, traditional age students, are, are very different than millennials um, in a couple of key ways. Uh, one of them is around amenities, right? They're less interested in, in the amenities of college, and they're much more interested in the services, particularly career services. Uh, and, and that harkens back to one, something you said earlier, Michael, about what students want out of college today. They want a job. This is really a generation that's been hugely impacted by the Great Recession, saw their parents in, in some cases lose their jobs, lose their possibly lose their homes. And, and really what they see college as is providing them financial security. That has a lot of implications for how colleges um, serve them. Um, second, uh, I think it's around teaching. Uh, this is a generation, obviously, that are digital natives. But what was interesting to me, and not only looking at the data around surveys, but also in talking to a lot of people, is that this is not a generation that necessarily wants to learn fully um, uh, in, in a digital way, right? They still want the physical presence, but it's the toggling between those two worlds that I think is absolutely critical uh, for colleges and universities. So it was a, a fascinating summer uh, finishing up that report and, and not only talking to Gen Z, but talking to the experts around them and, and, uh, and really looking forward to kind of diving a little bit deeper in that when I, when I do my, my new book. So, so much to talk about uh, in the coming year, Michael, and, and looking forward to, uh, to our second season here of, of Future You. Yeah, tremendously excited about it. Tremendously excited to be with you in person uh, for our next episode as well uh, as we kick off uh, this season and get it rolling. And we'll, of course, our next episode will go back to our traditional format where we have a guest for the first part. And then uh, we dive into commentary and breaking down what they said in the second part of the podcast. But until then, thank you all for joining and we'll see you next time on Future You. Future You.